This morning, we're going to talk about leadership within the church. And specifically, we're going to talk about the office of the pastor, elder, overseer. It's an important passage for us because it allows us, in 1 Timothy 3, to consider the way that we are structured as a church, to consider our church governance and how it aligns with what is set forth in the pages of Scripture. In fact, one of the things that I was asked to do when I first came here to First Baptist Church of Irving some three years ago now was to bring clarity to how we as a traditional Baptist church who believe in congregational government could also embrace elders, the leadership of elders. And teaching First Timothy 3 allows us to consider once again why I believe that is the most biblically faithful form of church government that we could employ. In terms of how we describe our church government, how we operate as a church, here's what we say. We are an elder-led, congregationally governed church. Elder-led, congregationally governed church. Now, I want us to press into that for a moment. What does this mean? What does it mean for us to be both elder-led and congregationally governed? Well, that commitment reflects Two biblical ideas that we want to hold together when we think about operating as a church. Firstly, every believer has a God-given responsibility to the church. If you are a follower of Jesus, follower of Christ, you have a God-given responsibility to the church to help that church exercise the authority that has been entrusted to her by God himself. Every one of you has that responsibility. And at the same time, the Lord has called out from among his people certain men. And we do believe that the role of pastor elder is reserved for men because of the testimony of Scripture. We already discussed that a couple of weeks ago in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It reaffirmed here that from among his people, certain men, not all men, qualified men, will be raised up to help lead the people of God. And the most faithful form of church government, in in my opinion, in the opinion of our church, those who have studied this and, and worked through this, is a combination of those two things that holds those two biblical commitments in proper, spirit filled balance. The mutual responsibility of church membership, member responsibility, and biblical leadership. We are a congregationally governed church. It is true that every member of a local body of Christ has been instructed to help the church exercise the authority entrusted to it as Baptists. We affirm that the church has been given unique authority in the kingdom of God and that authority has been entrusted to all believers. Do you know the church is not a building? Who is the church? Yes, turn to your neighbor and say, I'm the church. Turn to your other neighbor and say, you're the church. You're the church. So when the Bible describes certain activities of the church, he is describing the activity of the believers of God in concert. Each one of us as priests before God have a unique responsibility to deal with all matters of faith and life. For instance, some examples. It is the church that deals ultimately with issues of discipline according to Matthew 18, 15 to 17. While we begin one-on-one and two-on-one, Eventually, the end of expressing discipline, of removing someone from fellowship to say they are not in good standing with God or the church is a matter for the whole church to decide. And that's also because the church, according to Matthew 16, 19, is the one who binds and loosens in a spiritual sense. It is the church who sets apart the men that we are going to talk about today for the role of pastor elder. That is something that we all in agreement decide upon as an expression of the authority and the responsibility that God has given to the church. All members of the church have a responsibility in exercising the authority of the church. Practically here at our church, here are some other things that we have asked you to do as a congregation to make sure that we as leadership are ultimately accountable to you, the church, congregation. We ask you to make stewardship decisions. We're going to be voting on a budget very near, in the very near future. And we want all of you to be involved in that process because all of you are involved in meeting that budget. 
to be sure that we are exercising good stewardship and the way that we handle the provision that God has given to us as a church. We ask you to help us make certain leadership decisions, like who fits and sits in the role of senior pastor and other pastoral roles and responsibilities in our church, because you as the congregation, as we will see today, have a specific role in appointing and approving men to serve as pastor elders. We help you to make discipline. We ask you to help us make discipline decisions again at a certain point. I hope it's rare, but there may come a day where a pastor, elder, or member of the church is unfaithful to their responsibility to the church, and we as the membership must, for their good, their spiritual good, and the good of our church, declare they are no longer in good standing, and we can no longer affirm their following of Christ. That's a heavy responsibility, and it's one entrusted to all of us. And because of these expectations, we take membership very seriously here. Because it's a big deal what we ask membership to do. We are trusting that every single member who is working in concert to exercise the authority entrusted to the church is walking with God in such a way they can spiritually discern what is good and right and best for the church for the glory of God. And that there are people in our church who are evidencing a life that is not devoted to the lordship of Christ, we have to address that in order to make sure that the authority that has been given to the church is not undermined or abused for the sake of individual preference. It's also why we take discipline seriously. It's, uh, we want to be careful coming in, and we want to be responsible to shepherd while you are in the care of this church. Because... We are congregationally governed. And as a, a member in good standing in this church, you have a tremendous amount of authority and responsibility entrusted to you by God and the church itself. Now, our belief in congregational government, though, does not remove God-given leadership. Because we believe in God, uh, congregational government, that does not mean that there's no place for God-given leadership within the congregation. We're not saying that the pastor elder holds all authority. No, we're saying the church ultimately holds that authority. But God has raised up qualified men, godly men, to help lead the body of Christ toward greater faithfulness to Jesus and his mission. God, God will raise up from among us under shepherds to serve the chief shepherd to make sure that all of us as sheep are following Christ. And these men that God raises up from amongst us have a tremendous, tremendous responsibility as set forth in Scripture. Here's what elders are charged to do in the teaching of the New Testament. Firstly, they are to lead under the authority of Christ. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, when Peter says to the elders, shepherd the flock among you, not under compulsion, but willingly. And you do that until the chief shepherd returns. They, the pastor elder who God places in leadership and authority within the local church must recognize that his authority is limited and ultimately, like all of us, is under the authority of Christ. In fact, I would say this. If there's a pastor elder in our midst or in any church that is not consistently pointing the people of God back to Jesus, we got a problem. Secondly, they are to care for the body of Christ. We see an example of this in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 31. Elders in Ephesus, they are to protect the body of Christ, these pastor elders, and nurture the body of Christ through the faithful ministry of the Word. That leads us to point three. They are to teach the Word of God, these pastor elders. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 5 and Titus 1 9. Again, their authority under Christ is rooted in the authority of the Word of God. They have a responsibility to rightly divide the Word of God, to bring clarity and application to the church so that we as a people can implement the truth of God's Word into our lives as a set-apart people. And finally, they are to model the character of Christ. And I think, if we're being honest, we probably should put that at number one. And that's why Paul 
spends so much time focusing on attributes and character in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Because the character is of the utmost importance when considering a man to step into the role of pastor-elder. And that's why we're going to focus on that specific requirement today. This is brought to our attention from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Listen, you can have all the talent in the world. You can have all the leadership ability in the world. You can have a tremendous amount of biblical knowledge, but if you do not have the character outlined here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you have no business being a pastor elder. We're not looking just for potential. We're looking for proof. Spiritual proof that the few men who are called out from God and affirmed by the church to lead within the church are worthy of this kind of authority being entrusted to them. And that is the issue, by the way, happening in Ephesus. Because there are unqualified men teaching, false teaching, and leading the people of God astray. The responsibility and role of the pastor elder is too important to take it lightly. It's too important. There's too much influence. There's too much effect they can have on a people. And when we recognize the potential, it should cause us to be careful with how we entrust this authority and these roles to qualified men. So let's consider for a moment the kind of men that we should be looking for to step into the role of pastor elder. And I'll just remind you, if, even if you have no desire or no ability to step into the role of pastor elder one day, this is an important conversation for you as well. Why? Because you as the church are the one who set them apart. You got to know who should be set apart for this role. And secondly, you as the church follow these men. And if they don't meet these requirements, you should not follow them. Or you should remove them from that place because they're not worthy to sit in it. First Timothy chapter 3, where well, the Word of God says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, there are some very specific qualities that a man must have in order to be able to step into the office of pastor elder. And Paul says there are, there are two requirements here that we need to be focused on. The, the character traits combined with an aspiration, a God-given desire to step into this role. But not only the God-given desire, the character that matches and affirms the God-given desire to be worthy of stepping into the role of pastor elder. And when we think about these qualities that we're testing against the God-given aspiration, I think we can talk about them in four categories, four large categories that we want to think about when we are considering who is, who is worthy to step into this role and who we should be willing to give this authority to. Firstly, Pastor elders are to be above reproach. Above reproach. We see this in verses 2 and 3. An overseer, right? You're aspiring to be an overseer, but if you want to be an overseer, here are some qualifications for you. An overseer must be above reproach. And you could look at this qualification as if the ones that follow it in 2 and 3 are kind of a clarification about what it means to be above reproach. What we're talking about here in being above reproach is observable behavior. We're talking about observable behavior, what people in the church can see in their lives. And that what we can see a fruit in their lives, as far as we can tell, does not conflict with the commands 
and the expectations of God for his people and specifically of leaders among his people. Men who desire to step into the office of pastor elder must exhibit observable behavior that affirms their spiritual maturity, that affirms their complete submission to the lordship of Christ. There must be evidence in the life of the pastor elder that their faith matters and that it matters in every part of their life. They must have faith-influenced lives. They must not only be able to rightly divide the Word of God, but apply the Word of God into the course of life. Above reproach, they are not disqualified by observable behavior. In fact, when someone is brought forth before the church as a potential candidate for pastor elder, here's what the church should say. Of course. Of course. Not, what are you thinking? Right? Do you know this guy? (laughs) We should be saying, of course, because we have seen their activity and their life on display in the household of God. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. So let's consider what it means to be above reproach here. Firstly, there to be one woman men one woman, men. They are to be faithful. Husband of one wife. I don't think Paul is specifically talking about divorce here, as if divorce is some unpardonable sin that someone can never overcome. What we're talking about here is a display of long-continued faithfulness toward one woman as is pleasing to the Lord. One woman, men. Secondly, they are to be self-controlled. They are to be good stewards of what God has given and blessed us with rather than indulgent. They are to be respectable and hospitable. They are to treat others the way that God would want them to be treated. They are not drunkards, which is the opposite of self-control. They are not to be violent, which is opposite of respectable or quarrelsome, opposite of hospitable. They are not to be the lover of money. Whether they use their money in a way that shows their ultimate devotion to God. And they not only do this, they teach it. They teach it and they rightly apply it. So when we, as a people, begin to exercise the authority that God has given to us to set men apart for the office of pastor and elder, we are asking this question, do we see their faith in every area of their life? This is pretty comprehensive, right? what Paul's talking about. Do we see evidence of them desiring and striving to be faithful in every area of their life? Do they have a spirit-controlled temperament that will be beneficial to the people of God? And when they fail, because there's no way that we can be perfect in this at all time. On the whole, though, we're striving to be perfect. When they fail, do they immediately seek restoration? Do they immediately confess their sin and ask for grace? Again, as an example to the church. Hear me, church. We need men devoted to the things of God. All of us need to be devoted to the things of God, clearly. But we need men devoted to the things of God who are desiring to lead the people of God and not abdicate their their leadership. We need men who desire peace above conflict. We need men who will lead God's people toward what is best and what is right, not just what they want or what their preference is. We need men to consider the whole of the body of Christ, not just one particular group of friends and what they want. We need men whose ultimate loyalty is to Jesus. And it is clear in their life that that is the case. Pastor elders are to be above reproach. Secondly, pastor elders must demonstrate an ability to lead in a Christ-like way. Above approach and demonstrate an ability to lead in a Christ-like way. Verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? They must lead in a Christ-like way. And here's here's the interesting thing. The proving ground for how well they can lead is the home. Is the home. Because if he can't manage his own household well, Paul says, how can he manage 
the household of God? Can this man influence others toward godliness? It's a strong question. Has he been able to lead his wife and his children toward greater faithfulness to Jesus and faithfulness to his mission? Because if he can't do it there, what makes you think he can do it here? Now, why? Why is this the appropriate proving ground? Did you know that it's possible to fake godliness for two hours on a Sunday? Did you know that? It's possible to learn the right kind of behaviors and employ them because that's what you think people want to see of you whenever you're here. And you can put on a good face while you're at church and people can think that you're godly. But as soon as you leave those doors, a whole different person comes out, right? Jordan lives with me, right? 24-7, for better or worse. Jude and Julia live with me. They see me all the time. Here's the question. Do the people who see me most still want to follow me? The people who see me most allow me to influence their love for the Lord. Because if they do, that's a testimony to the fact that maybe some of the things that we're seeing is actually present within their lives at home. Can they lead their home well? Can the people who see them most trust them? If so, maybe that can be reflected in the church. And hear me, if that is not the case, then they are disqualified. I think sometimes we kind of pass over that qualification when we're talking about what it means to be a pastor elder. And of course, there are, there are limits to how someone can prove this if they're not married. It doesn't mean you're disqualified. But we do need to take it seriously. But there's evidence throughout the course of the week, not just on when we're gathered together, that faith matters and that people are willing to listen to them who are close to them because they see fruit not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. Thirdly, pastor elders must be sober-minded. Sober-minded. I want to build off one of the traits that Paul lists in verse 2 to help also understand what he's saying in verse 6. Verse 6, he says, the pastor elder must not be a recent convert or may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He must not be proud. He must be mature. He must be sober-minded. Pastor elders think differently because they commit to having their mind renewed by the truth of God's word. They see things differently. They respond to tense moments of tension and conflict differently. They respond to the, the world differently. They respond to the attacks of the enemy differently because they are grounded in their faith. They understand the weight of what it is that they're stepping into. And they understand the need to be on guard against the attack of the enemy. I got to be honest with you guys. When I was reading again this passage this week, I was overwhelmed by what God has asked of me in my life. And it reminded me why I was so resistant to step into a pastoral role to begin with. Growing up, everybody told me I was going to be a pastor or a lawyer, and the lawyer piece because I could argue with a stick, right? But they told me you're going to be a pastor or a lawyer, and I was always committed to lawyer. Not because I didn't love the Lord, because I didn't want the mantle. I didn't want the weight of what it means to, to set before people and, and bear the, 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 the weight they have entrusted to you of authority, of example. It's a heavy, heavy thing to step into the role of pastor elder. And if someone is too immature to recognize what they're stepping into, they're not ready. They're not ready. Why? Because the enemy will come after them. If you're overwhelmed by verses 1 to 7, and, and what God is asking of you to be a pastor elder, to step into this role, you can imagine that the moment that you agree, that you embrace the aspiration God has given you to step into this role, and it's affirmed by the people of God, what do you think the enemy is going to begin attacking immediately? The very things that qualified you in the first place. Right? And if you're so proud to think that you've arrived, and you can't be spiritually sensitive to be on guard, then you're not ready both for your own self and your own family, but also the people of God. Because we all know what happens. We all know the damage that happens 
when someone falls in pastoral leadership. They must be sober-minded. The attacks of the enemy will come against them and they will come against the people they lead. And we need people who are ready to wage the good warfare spiritually for the people of God and not overreact, not underreact, but not overreact, but to remain steadfast and the promises of God. Fourthly, pastor elders must be respected by people outside of the faith. Chapter 3, verse 7, they must be well thought of by outsiders so that he might not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil, so that no one can offer a false charge against them, but also as they become a, a light an example of the joy of living in Christ to those around them. Let me ask you this question. Or let me give you a question that you should ask when you're considering who should be a pastor elder. Does their reputation help the ministry of the church or hurt it? Does their reputation among their neighbors help the ministry of the church or hurt it? Does their reputation when they're talking politics help the ministry of the church or hurt it? Does their reputation on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram help the cause of Christ or hurt it? Do the people they work with affirm that he loves the Lord or would they affirm something else such that his reputation would hurt his ability to lead the church? People would not come to hear the gospel proclaimed because of his reputation. So these qualities represent the kind of men that we should look for in pastor elders. Again, a lot of these qualities, all of us should be pursuing because they are Christ-like, right? We should all be pursuing this, but does the aspiration given by God affirm, or is it affirm in the life of these men? That's the question. Not just pursuing Christ-likeness. Is there a God-given aspiration that is affirmed in the lives of these men because they hold these qualifications, these are the kind of men that we should look for. And hear me, it is your responsibility as a church to test the aspiration of these men to see if they are qualified. That's your job. I hope you don't take it lightly whenever we bring a, a pastor elder candidate before you to say, hey, this, this man has expressed a God-given desire to serve this local body, to give leadership, and we affirm that. And now we want to ask you to affirm what we have affirmed so they can serve as a pastor elder in the church. That's so important. A man may aspire to this office, but it is the church who sets apart men for ministry. You can aspire all you want, but if there's no church willing to set you apart, guess what? You're not in leadership. The church sets apart. And it is the church who holds us accountable once we are in this role. The leaders are called to care for you. And you're empowering them to lead, but you're also committing to help hold them accountable to remain vigilant in pursuing these things. Elders may lead, but they are always accountable to the congregation. That's why we are congregationally governed and elder-led. So let's talk for a moment a little bit more about your responsibility to the pastor elders that you have set over yourself as a church. And Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 to 25. And it's important for us to hold both of these responsibilities, right? The responsibility of the pastor elder, but also the responsibility of the congregation to the pastor elder. There's a, a mutual responsibility to one another. Verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox. What a humbling comparison, right? When it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And the presence of God in Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. 
Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but also a little wine. That's a whole conversation for another day. For the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments, the sins of some other people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, even those, uh, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So there's a lot of stuff going on in this passage. I want to focus just on the responsibilities that Paul sets forth here toward the church or for the church toward her leaders. What is your responsibility as a member, a congregant toward the elders? Those who you have affirmed and placed in leadership over you as the church. Firstly, we are to discern the right time to set a man apart. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. We are to discern the right time to set a man apart. It is possible that a young man or even an older man who's young in the faith can have the aspiration to be an elder, can have the the God-given aspiration to eventually step into leadership in the church and yet not be qualified. Not yet. Doesn't mean never, but not yet. And it's very important for us as the church, for the good of the church and, listen, for the good of these young men to not lay hands too quickly because I've seen damage, damage done to the lives of young men and the church when hands were laid on too quickly. Next week, I'm going to preach a camp. And I've, I've worked camps for a long time now, 18 years. Oh my Lord, I'm so old. <laughs> and I've worked with a lot of young people at these camp, camps over the past of the 18 years. God, people who felt led to go and give a summer of their lives to minister to young people. Many of them have gone on to serve the church faithfully. But a a not too insignificant number of them who felt callings of God on their life to serve the church and to serve the kingdom have abandoned the faith. People who would have aspired to be in ordained ministry or to serve the church vocationally, who after a time of proving have experienced have exhibited that they are no longer following Jesus faithfully. There are some men I'm thinking of right now who have embraced alternative lifestyles. There are some who have rejected the faith altogether. Two of these men that I know are in prison today because they had unhealthy, unnatural sexual desires that they let get out of hand and it led them to some illegal activity. Can you imagine the damage that churches would have experienced, some churches did experience, because these men were not ready to step into the role, the office. And I say this for, for all of our benefits. There are a lot of, listen, we've got a unique privilege at First Baptist Church of Irving. We've got a lot of young people who love the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a lot of young men and women who are desirous to give their lives to serving the church and his kingdom. And we got a lot of, of men, young men in that category who, who are desirous to be set apart for leadership in the church to be ordained. What an incredible opportunity we have before us. But it would be the service to them, to us, and other churches they would go on to serve if we don't take time to make sure that they are ready and that they actually meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. Does that mean that God can't use young men? No, thankfully not. Timothy was young. But it does mean they're mature in their faith. And they are ready to take on the mantle of leadership that God has entrusted to them. So, we take this responsibility seriously to discern the right time to set a man apart. And for you young men, who are desirous to be ordained for gospel ministry, don't get frustrated when we say wait. Because this possible you can go down the street to another church and get ordained immediately. Listen, you can go online. I saw a guy last night on a game show who had been ordained 
to do cat weddings. Right? I mean, you can get ordained. But if you take it seriously, if you take it seriously, then trust the leadership. Trust the process. And wait. What's it going to hurt? To allow a time of testing. Recognizing the potential danger to you and the church if you're not ready. Secondly, we are to honor pastors who teach with a double honor. That's in verses 17 and 18. And listen, I know this sounds self-serving, but it's just the word. (laughs) Let the elders who rule well, in accordance with the way God's designed, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, what does that mean, double honor? Well, firstly, it means that you honor them with respect. That you honor them as the family of God with respect. And let me just say this. It's a moment of of testimony. This is hard work. What God has called me as a pastor elder to and the other pastor elders who are overseeing this church, it is difficult work. And any man who meets these qualifications and is willing to step in to the arena, to lead, to sacrifice their time, their ability, time with their family, to undergo the attacks of the enemy that come against them, they're worthy of our respect. Don't put them in the office if they're not. But if they're in the office, they're worthy of our respect. Now, Jerry, does that mean that we have to agree with them all the time? No. But here's a a newsflash. Did you know it is possible to disagree with someone and be respectful. It seems like we've forgotten that. Do you know you can have a conversation with someone and say, hey, listen, brother, I love you. I just don't know that this is the right direction. Can you help me explain? Can we test this a little bit? Do you know you can do that in a way that's respectful? You don't have to sit on your little email, do, 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 and you know, be disrespect. You can be respectful. And so we honor we honor those who God is, who is called out from among us by giving them respect. Even when we disagree, we respect. But secondly, we pay them. And as someone who labors in preaching and teaching, let me just say on behalf of all of us, thank you for your faithful stewardship to allow us to be able to do this. It is, it is hard work, again, what we do. And it is a blessing to be able to devote our time to the, to the study of God's word, to be able to devote ourselves to the pastoring of God's people and the leading of God's people. I don't have to go worry about working a nine to five. I can do this. Now, some of our guys do that. We have pastor elders among us who do work a nine to five job and still on top of that, serve. Praise the Lord for them. And the reality is most of us, Pastor elders moving into the future are probably going to be doing that. Bivocational or full vocational and, and leading pastor elder, where a, a smaller number of us are going to be able to work full time for the church. That's probably the reality of where we're heading. Praise the Lord for those who do. But it is biblical to honor those who do labor vocationally for preaching and teaching and ministering to God's people to pay them. So, as the church, you are to respect and give the elders who rule well a double honor. And here's the reality, guys. If the people that we put, the men we put into this office, if they meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, this is going to be easy. It's going to be easy, right? We're not talking about nightmares, I hope. Right? Nobody's saying amen. We're talking about people who love the Lord who wants what's best for the Lord. And there can be disagreements about how we apply the word of God sometimes. But ultimately, we know we can trust that their heart is moving us toward the Lord and faithfulness. And we can trust that. So double honor. Thirdly, we are to protect our pastor elders against the attack of the enemy. And we see this in verses 19 to 25. Both false accusations... And when they fall into sin, we are to work to protect them. Firstly, there should be no charge against an elder unless there are multiple witnesses. Two or three, which is accordance with Jewish law, right? 
If there's a charge against an elder that they are somehow no longer qualified to serve in the role of pastor elder, then there must be multiple people who can speak to that in the same way that multiple people affirmed their character to be put into the office of pastor elder in the first place. Why? Because do you know the enemy can use good people? And sometimes when they don't get their way or a sin is revealed they're not ready to deal with or they just don't like something, they can manipulate a situation to call into question the leadership of a pastor elder or pastor elders in order to hurt their leadership to get what they want. To hurt their leadership, which ultimately hurts church. And so it's our responsibility to consider and be careful about how we speak about our pastor elders. In the same way that it's good for us to be considerate about how we speak about one another, right? Gossip, period, is bad. We shouldn't be slandering anyone. But Paul makes it very clear that it is really important because of what has been entrusted to them that pastor elders be guarded against false accusations because of what it can mean for them and for the church. But it is also true that when one of them does stumble into sin, and it is affirmed that it be dealt with, because inasmuch as their example is on display, their failure will be on display. And if it's not handled in the right way, it can damage them and it can damage the church. If you don't deal with it, that's bad for their heart and bad for their soul and bad for other pastors around them, bad for the church. But when you do deal with it, it allows them to move to a place of restoration. And they may not be able to step into the office of pastor elder ever again. They may be. But it is good when we deal with the sins that are evident before us, which is all the more reason why we shouldn't be hasty to lay on hands, to make sure that there is proven time of faithful following of Jesus so that this becomes less likely than in other cases. There's a balance that God has put on display here for us that we need to embrace. God has raised up qualified men who are accountable to the men and women they lead. Now, when you put us in authority as pastor elders, you are releasing us to make some decisions, absolutely, because we can't bring every decision to seven, 800 people, right? There's the things we have to do. But then we're also saying that on the ultimate big thing decisions, we're going to come back to you because we're ultimately accountable to you and we want to do what's best. There's a, a relationship that we have to have in place where you set us apart, allow us to lead, but then we understand that we are ultimately always accountable and responsible to you. So what does this mean for First Baptist Church of Irving specifically? Now that we kind of understand our desire to be a congregationally governed but elder-led church, now that we understand the, the kind of men that we're seeking and the relationship they are to play to us. Let me give you just some quick points of application firstly. Let us remember that there is flexibility in church governance. There are some very clear things in Scripture. And there are some freedoms that we're given to organize and structure ourselves in a way that we believe is best for us. Right? So we have clearly the office. We have clearly the requirements of the office. But there's no requirement as to how many. Right? We have freedom in how many we believe should sit over us in a pastor-elder role. So there's some freedom and flexibility there as we think about this. Now, and, and it's important for us to remember because there are other churches who will organize themselves differently. And that doesn't mean that they're heretics. It just means that they have different understandings, perhaps, of the text, or certainly different applications of the text. But what we're talking about for First Baptist Church of Irving is what we, as the pastor and elders of our church, believe is the best, most faithful representation of what the Bible says clearly and how we can apply it faithfully. And so we believe that congregationally governed, elder-led governance does that. And that's different from even some of the ways that this church was governed in the past. For a long time, there was a kind of a single pastor model and a board of deacons to respond to, right? But there's a whole host of confusion that happens there because, as we'll see next week, deacons are not called to lead. 
They're called to lead in serving, but they're called to be servants. And when you start giving deacons responsibilities that are specifically given to elders, you have a confusion of terms. And that creates all kinds of drama in the church because men who are qualified to be deacons may not be qualified to be elders, and yet they're given the same responsibility as elders, and so they're operating out of their giftedness. And so we want to be as clear as possible. Now, we're not going to say that they were unfaithful. We're just going to say that we have a conviction that leads us to a different place today. And we're going to operate within that conviction. So there's flexibility. And let's also remember that the majority of the New Testament seems to suggest that in these churches, there were multiple qualified men, not just one. Multiple men. Titus 1.5, elect elders, elect elders. Acts 13, verse 1. When you think about the church in Antioch, they had, a, they had, a, they had some all-stars. Listen to these people, a lot of them, right? In the church in Antioch, here are the prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. It's a lot of men, right? Why? Well, listen. The responsibility of leading the people of God is too much for one man to handle on his own. Now, there can be a lead pastor. There can be someone who gives leadership to the leaders. Absolutely, that's what I do. But for me to to wear the weight, the spiritual weight on my own, it's too much for me to bear. And there's no way that I could pastor seven, eight hundred of you by myself in a way that is profitable and good for you. We need other men. Secondly, we need men to seek the qualifications of a pastor elder. Now, as I've said before, men and women, all of us, should be pursuing Christ's likeness. But we do need certain men, not all men, certain men, to sit before the Lord and ask whether or not he is calling them to give leadership to the church and to respond to that God-given aspiration by communicating it and then sitting through a time of testing so that when an opportunity arises and one of our pastor elders decides that God is calling him to move to Africa to start a seminary, for instance, we have some men who are ready to step into that vacuum, that role. And we're not just grasping to get whoever is willing to come into the office. We need men, qualified, godly men, to rightly divide the Word of God and help disciple. We need these men to help deal with pastoral care issues, sensitive issues that we need to to help families navigate. We need men to help deal with moments of discipline and godly ways. Qualified men who sit in the office of pastor elder who are doing pastor elder things. We need some men to embrace that calling, embrace that leadership. And then finally, all of us need to respond lovingly to the godly leadership given to us. Pastors can be threats sometimes, right? It's always a funny thing. When I show up at the hospital, someone thinks they're about to die. And when I call somebody to go get lunch, the first question is immediately, what have I done wrong? Right? (laughs) That's not what we're called to do entirely, in part. Pastors aren't threats. They are gifts given to us by God. They are called out from among us to lead and help us, the church, do what God has called us to do well. Pastors don't work for us. I've heard that terminology used sometimes, especially in congregationally governed churches. They don't tell us what to do. We tell them what to do. Not according to Scripture. There's a, a balancing act where you submit to the leadership of the church, but the church also is mindful of the people. And this is so important for us because here is the sinful tendency when it comes to authority. Here's a sinful tendency. The sin in us as members want to reject authority. The sin in us as pastors want to abuse authority. And we all need to be before the Lord and a place of repentance and humility, gospel-centered to make sure that we are operating as a church and responding to each other in a way that honors the Lord. Because ultimately, it's a reflection for all of us about how we are responding to the chief shepherd, who is Jesus Christ. 
And if we're not willing to submit to him, ultimately we will not submit to each other, right? Ephesians 5, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The same way it works in marriage is the same way it works here. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if you have not submitted your heart to Christ, you're not going to submit to any other authority. And if you've not submitted your heart to Christ, then you're not going to embrace the authority that he's given you under his lordship. And that's ultimately what we have to end today, friends. We are a family. We are a people who are set apart to honor Christ with everything that we do. So let's be sure that we think about church government in a way that honors the Lord. That those of us who are in leadership positions think about those positions in a way that honors the Lord. And let's all seek to be submissive to the Lordship of Christ because he is our chief shepherd and our ultimate authority. Wherever you are, as you bow your head, spend some time before the Lord. Let me ask you this question first and foremost. Have you given your life to the chief shepherd? And a great way to consider and think about how much Jesus has your heart is to think about how you respond to authority. Do you reject authority because you don't like people telling you what to do? Do you do you reject the authority of Scripture? You think it's outdated and God doesn't know what you need or want? Well, friends, let me just say this to you today. This whole church conversation is moot if you're not a part of the people of God. And the only way you do that is by giving your life to the chief shepherd to allow him to become, to allow him to allow you to become part of his bride. If you don't know Jesus, just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to speak with you more about Jesus is, what he's done for you. For the rest of us, maybe there's still some sin in your heart toward authority. And you desire authority, not because of a God-given desire, but because you just like to rule over people. You like to be in control and have your say. That's damaging, friends. Be destructive to the church. I'm not saying God can't use you, but you need to have the right heart. Maybe you need to repent of that today. Maybe some of us in this room have responded poorly to authority in the past, not in a respectful way. We haven't honored them. Maybe you need to repent of that today. Or maybe we just need to rejoice today. I'm so grateful that we have the kind of godly men who sit as pastor elders that we do at our church. And again, we have faithful, we have godly women ministers as well. And we want to give thanks for them. But there are qualified men who have stepped into the arena to help lead this church. And I pray you would give thanks for them today. And that you would do more than that. You would send them a letter this week. Take them to lunch. Have them over to your, your house and say, hey, thank you. Thank you for what you do. I'm not saying that just for me, all right? That's not just all self-serving. I'm saying it for all these guys. Guys who work nine to five jobs and yet sacrifice their free time with their family to come and talk about matters of faith and life. Let's rejoice in God's provision and leadership as we await the return of the chief shepherd. Father, would you help us know how to respond today? Find us faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand and respond as the Lord leads.